Uh, we're looking at uh, the knowledge of God and the best way, the tools you need to make this really work is to have your Bibles open. Uh, so we're at Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 3, we're looking at that passage. We're also going to be moving elsewhere in the Bible and even though the passages are on the screen, it's really good to flick there, put a little marker there, go back to it during the week, really think about it uh, as we try and understand who our great God is. Also, you've been given a um, handout today with a welcome card. If you've got any question, put it down on there, and I'd love to get back to you during the week and help you. Um, So I can't cover everything I want to say in 25 minutes, um, but if you've got questions, I'd love to help you through the week. Why don't we pray? Father God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Speak to us today by your word, Lord. May your spirit illuminate it to us and may we follow it as Jesus did when he was tempted. In his name, amen. Now, late at night on Free-to-Air, there are these late shows and uh, one of them is run by Stephen Colbert, a British um, man. And uh, in 2017, he interviewed another British man, a British comedy, a, a comedian, called Ricky Gervais, and uh, Ricky's a committed atheist, and uh, Stephen is a committed Catholic, and he wanted to talk about God with Ricky. And so they're having their chat and all that stuff, and then Colbert leaned in and said, I believe in God. Gervais said this, Stephen, there are 3,000 to choose from. You basically deny one less than I do. You don't believe in 2,999 gods. I just don't believe in one more than you. Everyone laughed. It's kind of awkward and it moved on. There's great ignorance and confusion about God in the world at the moment, isn't there? Gervais's agnostic atheism it's reflecting the growing no religion in the census in Australia. Maybe your neighbours are like this. They ticked that last year and they would say to you if they ever wanted to talk to you, I just don't believe because there's no proof. There's no scientific proof. There's no evidence. And so then they buy into the kind of mocking and they look at you and go, belief in God belongs pre-science. Before we understood the world. That's when you can believe in God. You don't need to believe in God anymore. Now, 50% of Australians do believe in something. And if they're your neighbour and you ask them, what, what's God like? Most people would share a vague, irrelevant, powerless, bit mean, slightly restrictive and distant God. A blend of misquoted Bible verses, Disney and the Simpsons. That's their God. And actually... In a whole bunch of churches in Australia, as people stop reading this, they may read it on a Sunday, but often they don't, the picture of God they worship resembles a progressive, politically correct human. So is there a God? And if there is a God, how might we know God? As Gervais says repeatedly, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Here's the answer. The living God, the author of all life, has made himself known. 
What do George Orwell, Robert Galbraith, Mark Twain and Lewis Carroll have in common? They're all pen names. They're not real people. They're all pen names of authors who wrote those books under a pseudonym, under a fake name, a pen name. And each of these other people, Eric Blair, J.K. Rowling, Samuel Clellans, Charles Dodgen, had a moment when they took off the covers and said, aha, I'm the real author. And people go, wow, you're the real author. There isn't a Mark Twain out there. There isn't a Robert Galbraith. And we realize who the real author is. That's what's happened with God. The living God has revealed himself to human beings in words and actions across history. The great reveal, the big reveal, was when God became a real-life character in the human play called life. And the proof, we don't go to a scientific proof. What we do is we go to historical record, the Bible. For in the Bible, it records the words and the actions and the arrival of God across a thousand years. And as you read the Bible, it presents a coherent and a consistent and a comprehensive picture of the living God. Now, without the Bible, human beings cannot know God with any depth or certainty. We shut this and don't read it. We cannot know God with depth or certainty. Without the Bible, we will create a God unworthy of worship. We'll create a God in our own image, whether weak or a tyrant. We will create irrelevant statues that have no power. But if we open the Bible and let God reveal himself, he tells us what he's like. Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, you do not believe in the God of your imagination. You believe in the God of the Bible. And he is the God of Israel, the Old Testament Israel. And he's also the God who rose Jesus from the dead. And Christians, we believe in one God, not two, not three, not seven, not 94. And more specifically, we believe in a God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and spirit. Each of those are fully God. We don't have 33% of God in the Father and 33% in the Son and 33% in the Spirit and we add to get one. No, no, no. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. One God, three persons. That's the God you know. That is the God Chris led us in prayer to. And that is the God you trust. That's the God when you go to the factory tomorrow or to university or school and you share about your God, you are sharing about a Trinitarian God, not a vague God of the thousands. The living God is Father, Son and Spirit. Now, that's called the Trinity. And some of you who've heard that word go, oh, the Trinity, it's too hard. And it is hard. It's very difficult to conceive of God who is one and three persons. And what humans have done is we've tried to illustrate it to make it easier. We love to illustrate stuff. And so over the years, you would have heard that God is like water. He's like ice, um, liquid and gas. Or God is like a shamrock. He's like you've got three leaves of the shamrock and he's kind of the three and it makes one plant. Or you might have heard, you know, God is like 
Ed goes to work and he is a minister and Ed at home is a dad and Ed online is something, right? Like, you know, like we've got these kind of three different times when we're all the same. Now, all of those are unhelpful. Actually, they're all wrong. They're all really unhelpful because what they do is they either split God into three distinct and we lose the one or we make God just one with different faces. And that's their lies about God. And we don't want to tell lies about God. Instead, what do we need to do? Instead of coming up with a little picture that's unhelpful and a lie, let's just let God tell us what he's like. Because God has revealed himself in history, in normal life. And that's what we saw in Matthew chapter 3, didn't we? We saw, as Fiona read, the three persons of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? The Father acknowledged the Son and expressed his deep eternal love for the Son. And then the Spirit shows his presence in the Son's life and ministry. And the Son, he gives himself to the mission of God. And then the Spirit, he compels the Son to go into the wilderness and face the temptation that Adam and Eve faced in Genesis 3. And then the Son repels temptation. How? By obeying the Father's words. One God, three persons in action. God is active, it's communal, it's equal. The loving relationships of three people that have existed for eternity in heaven suddenly was in the dirt of Israel. It's beautiful and rich, isn't it? And actually, it's nothing a human being would ever make up. If you can make up what God is like, he's too small. When God reveals what he's like, it's complex, it's hard, it's beautiful, and it's true. In John chapter 5, Jesus explains how it works. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. For he has granted him the right to pass judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Have a closer look at that. Jesus claims to be able to do anything God does. Jesus says, I can give life. I can forgive sins, Mark 2. I can control creation, the wind, the waves. I can judge people. Yet Jesus says that, look, he's not the father. The father is different. He gives the son authority and the son seeks the father's will. So we're never to think that Jesus is just God wearing the sun mask. No, no, Jesus is truly God. Yet he is different to the father. Now, likewise, the Holy Spirit is a person. John chapter 14, verse 26, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father to do the will of the Father and the Son, which is also the will of the Spirit. One God, one will working together, three persons. The Spirit comforts and seals and reminds and raises the dead. The Bible tells us if you lie to the Holy Spirit, 
you're lying to God. The Spirit is not an abstract force. It is a, the third member of the Trinity. Now, why does this matter? Because we do not have a generic faith in a generic God. Our God is not vague. It's not turn up to church and pick your favorite attribute of God and go, that's who I worship today. God's loving today. God's kind today. God's just today. No, no, no. We don't just pray to God. We don't share God with orange. The living God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Trinity is not an optional add-on for hardcore 1045 Christians. Now, now have a look on the screen. Herman Witzhouse says this, He who does not adore the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit as equal in divine majesty does not worship the true God, but worships a creation in their own imagination. What's his point? If the God you worship is not Trinity, you don't know God at all. Anything less is sub-Christian. And that is why, remember your baptism. Some of you were babies, but a lot of you weren't. You were baptized, when you, be, when you chose to be, take on baptism, you were baptized into the name, singular, not names, name, one God, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You see, God doesn't say, you can understand me. No, he never says that. You can't. He's God. But every moment of your life, you are in relationship with a Trinitarian God. Now, Copernicus, old guy, he is widely credited with establishing that the sun and not the earth is at the center of the solar system. Okay? Now, that was hard to believe back in the, 1700, uh, back in the 1500s because everything in your life had the earth at the center. You woke up and you looked east and the sun rose. In the evening, the sun set. Then the moon rose and the moon set. And you had to go, oh, obviously the earth is at the center. And there was no rockets in 1500. You couldn't go out into the solar system and measure the diameter of the solar system and put the finger in the middle of the diameter and go, oh, it's the sun. You couldn't do that. So how did they work it out? Well, as they studied the movement of the planets, it was a mess if you had the earth at the center. The universe was a mess when the earth was at the center. But when you put the sun at the center, the movement of the planets made sense. That's the same with the Trinity. The Christian life, your Christian life, it's a mess if the Trinity is not at the center. But if you put the Trinity at the center, then everything makes sense. The gospel makes sense. Salvation makes sense. Relationships make sense. Prayer makes sense. Now, it's a big call, so let's test it out. What's the gospel? Gospel means good news. Christians talk about the gospel all the time, but what's the gospel? It's the Trinity at work. It is the Father giving a Son to save the world, John 3.16, and then giving the Holy Spirit to enable people to have a relationship with the Father through the Son. If Jesus is not God, he cannot forgive your sins. Your sin problem is between you and God. If Jesus isn't God, 
He shouldn't be in the, he's not, he's not even a part of the conversation. He's just a rude person who's getting involved. No, no, that's between you and God. If Jesus is God, he can forgive sins. On the cross, if the father is hanging there, he cannot offer himself to himself. The father cannot be on the cross offering himself to himself. You see, the gospel is God the son obeying God the father and giving his life to save us from judgment. That's why in that great hymn in Philippians, it's Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the obedient son. But but how are we saved? And all of you say, well, you'd say, by faith, not works. Faith in who? Ooh. Faith in who? God. Too broad. But these are written, John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, eternal life, it comes to those who grasp and trust and worship that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what Thomas did. He went, oh, my Lord and my God. Now, if Thomas is wrong, that's blasphemy and he'll go to hell. You worship the wrong God, you'll go to hell. Okay, it's the biggest mistake in life. But Thomas didn't get it wrong because Jesus is God and life is comes through his name. So how do you be saved? Well, when you trust Jesus, you're reconciled with the Father, redeemed by the Son, and the Spirit of God puts his seal in you. Okay, so how does this impact Monday to Saturday? Well, what you think about God will determine how you do relationships. How you love your wife, how you love your husband, how you love your parents, how you love your girlfriend or boyfriend, how you love people online, how you love the person standing in front of you at Coles, is shaped by how you view God. Let's explore this. There are two main ways human beings on earth find significance. Okay, Culture has kind of gone two directions. On one side, we have collective cultures where the group, whether that's the nation or a family or a tribe, takes primary significance over the individual. So if you go into Eastern cultures or in the old days in communism, that is their examples of the collective culture, the group over the individual. Now, in collective cultures, your personal needs and wants are secondary to the group. So in the Tour de France at the moment, in a team of eight riders, seven blokes basically sacrifice all their dreams of winning a race to help one. That's a collective culture. Now, the other side is in individualistic cultures. And in the individualistic cultures, no-brainer, the individual matters more than the group. And so we see this in the West. Your first name is more important than your family name. Okay, that's very common in the West. Your individual wants, whether you want to choose your own identity, choose your own gender, choose your own needs, choose your own wants, they're primary over the group that you belong to. It's all about you be you. Now, interestingly, both of these lead to a devaluing of human beings. Interesting, isn't it? Both lead to a devaluing of human beings. In collective cultures, human life is cheap. 
Okay, World Cups in uh, a Middle Eastern country this year. The amount of men who died building soccer stadiums is incredible. But life is cheap over there and it didn't matter to get the whole built. In individualistic cultures, how do we live? Survival of the fittest. When you do survival of the fittest, it means you can push someone else down to ensure that you get what you want. You will hoard toilet paper so you don't miss out. You will do whatever you want at school to make sure you are first and someone else is second. See, in both ways, the human being is devalued. The Bible presents a different picture. It says all individuals are significant as part of the whole. And it's called the church. And the church is shaped by the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, Now you're the body of Christ, singular, one body, and individual members of it. You see, the church, it's one body. And it's made up of many parts. This is 1045, isn't it? Such a diverse group of people. There are mature Christians sitting next to immature Christians. There are people who are weak this morning sitting next to people who are strong. We are really different, yet we are one. And we are not one because we love OEC. No, we're one because the person sitting next to you has the same Holy Spirit as you do. You are utterly equal with the person sitting next to you because you are saved exactly the same. There are no levels in heaven. Everyone is saved the same, the littlest to the oldest, and you are given the same Holy Spirit. And that produces a community that is different to a soccer club and a workplace and a family and a nation because your significance is never found in self-advancement. Leaders are not more important than non-leaders at OEC. It's more important than the promotion of a group. Your significance is found because you look in the mirror every morning and you say, I'm a child of God. And that never changes. I'm loved by the King. I am a brother or a sister to Jesus. And that means you turn up on a Sunday morning and you are not here for you. You are here to encourage those who are also brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means we do weird things, don't we? We mourn with those who are mourning. What a waste of time. No. My significance is in Jesus. I can sit with someone who's going through a hard time and it's inefficient and boring and I may never achieve anything, but I'm expressing who I am. And I rejoice with those who rejoice, who are going well. I may feel jealousy, but I want them to succeed because I'm part of the same family. I'll use my gifts to help others and not promote myself. Let's finish by getting even more specific. Do you know that before God created the world, he was already the father of the son? You see, God... Before he was the creator, he was the father, always been the father. And he always had the son, and the father and the son, they have loved each other forever. And the spirit has loved the father and the son forever. Love is older than creation. 
There was a time when you were not, when the world was not, but there was never a time when love was not. You see, God has always loved his son. In the Bible, 1 John 4, three words. God is love. Because God is Trinity. God didn't create you to fill a gap in his love. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. It was always an overflow of the love already there. And you and me, we're made in the image of God. You don't look like God. God is a spirit and God is the son in physical form. But you are made to love like God. Sacrificially, self-giving, other person-centered love. Hear what Jesus says. John 13, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how you know you follow the true God. If you love your wife like Jesus loved you. Because that's how Jesus loves the Father. How do you know you love your parents as a Christian? Because you love your parents like Jesus loves you. Like Jesus loves his father and the father loves him. If we live for self, it is foreign to Christianity. Because it's foreign to the Trinity. At no point does the father, son or spirit live for themselves. It's so foreign. Neither do we who call ourselves Christians. We are called to love each other as Jesus loved us on the cross. And so our knowledge of God will shape our relationships. If we have a vague knowledge of God, then we won't sacrificially love others. But if we know our God as Father, Son and Spirit and we know that they love each other from all eternity and we see that love on the cross, then gosh, we will love our children like Jesus loved us. We will love our girlfriends and boyfriends like Jesus loved us. We will love our spouses like Jesus loved us. We will love our workmates like Jesus loved us. Because we're made in the image of Jesus and we're saved to live like him. How do we know God? The living God's made himself known. And as you get to know him, you know him personally as Father, Son and Spirit, complex and beautiful, the centre of the solar system. So we will know salvation, relationships and the gospel. Just taking a leaf out of Tim's book, I'm going to pray a prayer from someone else. It's John Stott's morning prayer. He prayed it every morning of his life, from when he became a Christian to when he went home. Will you pray with me? Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. And good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Saviour and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, Sanctifier of the people of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you may fill me with yourself. Cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Holy, blessed and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy on me. Amen.